Welcome to Technology and Security. TS is a podcast exploring the intersections of emerging technologies and national security. I'm your host, Dr. Mia Hamanderi. I'm the inaugural director of the Emerging Technology Program at the United States Studies Center, and we're based in the University of Sydney. My guest today is Victor Dominello. Thanks for joining me. Welcome. Victor is known for modernizing the delivery of government services in New South Wales, including digital solutions during the COVID-19 pandemic. He was a cabinet minister for 12 years, including most recently as the Minister for Customer Service and Digital Government. He's currently the director of the Trustworthy Digital Society Hub at the University of New South Wales and the University of Technology, Sydney, and sits on the board of the Tech Council of Australia. Welcome to the show. Thank you. We're coming to you today from the lands of the Gadigal people. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, both here and wherever you're listening. We acknowledge their continuing connection to land, sea and community and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So, Victor, where did your passion for technology actually come from? Well, I've always liked tech. I'm, you know, I like gadgets and things. I like things being efficient. I don't like wasting. I'm a bit of a minimalist. But in terms of my political career, uh, it really came in about 2012. I became Minister for Aboriginal Affairs in 2011. But I remember in uh, 2012, there was uh, an incident where there was an outbreak of child sexual abuse in a remote community and, and we had an intervention of sorts. And at the time, uh, we were trying to get a briefing and a handle on how we deal with this issue. It was obviously a very a terrible situation. Um, we were getting reports on what took place after the event, i.e. Um, people would present to a hospital after the event and there was evidence of abuse. People would go to a police station and report after an event of the abuse. And I said, well, this is all great. But, you know, what we're trying to do is prevent uh, things from happening. I, we're the lead indicators for something that might be happening before it occurs. And I, and I said, look, I'm not an expert, but I would have thought truancy would be, you know, one of the lead indicators. Everybody's nodding their head around the table. So, well, that's great. Well, then tell me which kids are not going to school today. Which kids didn't go to school yesterday and the day before? Which of those kids are related? Uh, et cetera, et cetera. And they couldn't tell me. They said, we could get you a report in three or four weeks. I said, three or four weeks? Like, we're trying to intervene now to stop an outbreak occurring. And that sort of started my journey on digitizing things, getting things in real time so we can make critical decisions uh, that would have a, a positive impact. That's really interesting. It sounds to me a lot like you're really focused on using technology to solve specific problems, even though you're really passionate about the technology itself as well. Oh, I'm very passionate about tech, but it's an enabler. It's to drive better outcomes. Like tech on tech on its own is is nothing. It, it, tech to empower people is inspiring. You can have modern miracles on mass at pace. You're well known for modernising the delivery of government services in New South Wales. What are you most proud of and what would you do differently next time? One of the things I'm most proud of over the last you know, seven or eight years in particular when we really started moving towards a more data-focused uh, data government and uh, through digital channels is the uplift, the enormous digital maturity of our state. There's a couple of key markers around that. One would be the uptake of the digital driver's license. So 
you know, we started the DDL in 2018-19 and uh, we're now at a point where 80% of people in New South Wales have got a digital driver's licence, which is just incredible figures around the world. Like, you, you know, these are site figures that you get when you mandate things. Yeah. 85% of the adults in New South Wales would have their service app on their phone and loving it, mind you. But, you know, not just having it, but loving it. 90, 92, 93% old scores. Like, that, that's an enormous uplift. And when you have a look at the digital driver's license, it's not like it's everyone below the age of 30. It, when you look at the pie chart, it was a fairly equitable distribution across the ages. So I'm really, I'm really proud that uh, we've been on that journey together. Were there any, any innovations um, that you would have liked to have seen out or been able to deliver? Yeah, the, the number one priority for me was the digital ID and verifiable credential. I got it to a pilot phase on my phone before I left. I made sure that that was the last thing I did. Um, we need to roll that out. That, that's the, that is one of the most important things for our country in terms of productivity, in terms of service delivery, in terms of privacy, in terms of security. So, yeah, um, you know, let's talk about digital identification then. So can you set out for listeners why it's so important and maybe what some of the tensions inherent? Well, before uh, the 1990s, i.e. before the internet, uh, there was a thing called the Australia card debate in the 1980s, 86 from memory. But again, that, that debate took place uh, in an era where there wasn't even an internet. Uh, and people were saying Big Brother, et cetera, and all these things. You can use tech uh, to actually enhance privacy settings. Now, I'll give you an example. In Estonia, uh, you know, they, they've got pretty much digital platforms across government. If somebody is in the public servants and they are looking at my file, my, my digital file in Estonia, I would get a notification as an individual. If somebody was looking at my file right here in New South Wales, I wouldn't have a clue. Wouldn't have a clue. So... You can, you can use these systems in place to actually enhance your privacy settings, provided the individual's in control. Uh, so identity goes a long way to enshrining and, and improving your privacy. It goes a long way to uh, improving your security settings as well. And we saw that during the Optus breach. Uh, if you had a digital driver's license, we could get you back on your feet with a new digital driver's license within minutes. If you're waiting on a plastic card to be replaced, uh, you, you could potentially have a flag on your name, on your license for months. So minutes versus many, many months. And then just as importantly, it centralizes service delivery around the individual. Because at the moment, the individual has to you know, create multiple versions of themselves. They'll go to health one minute, education next minute, transport next minute, you know, what are planning the next minute? Whereas service delivery needs to be anchored around the individual. Once you've got identity and you're in control of your identity, then agencies need to go to you. And that means you get far better service delivery because it's all joined up rather than segregated. It's a huge play and it's something we need to do as a country. It does also um, place a really significant onus on the data itself being held by you know, whichever government agency or so the original data source becomes really critical there. The way we're building it out in New South Wales means that you've got an ID or a de facto ID from a driver's license. So that, that, that credential is held by transport. Um, 
you've got another ID or a sub-credential with a birth certificate. And that's we did digital, but that's held with another department called uh, birth, deaths, and marriages. You'll have another ID called Medica card. Again, digital, that's held with the feds. Another one, passport, another department inside the feds. So it's all decentralized and said there's no honeypot of where all this is curated. It all then goes into your app. So you unlock it so that the individual has the, you know, one key of the kingdom. But then to unlock it, you need four other keys. I guess what I'm getting at is for the verification side, the, those agencies, birth, deaths and mar marriages, so on, they, the data that they hold becomes incredibly powerful and significant. It, 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 but it is now. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Whether they're holding the data in a paper form, a plastic form or a digital form. Yeah. But when they hold it in the digital form, again, they can move at pace in the event that there is a problem. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's great distinction. Just taking you uh, back for a second, what are the challenges, you know, inherent in government in harnessing innovation that comes from industry and academia that maybe isn't resident in government agencies? Governments are traditionally conservative, ultra conservative by nature, and that's not a political statement. It's a statement of um, their risk profile. And that's fair enough. Like governments, you don't want a government that is so edgy um, that it's playing around with public hospital systems. You, you want um, safe, reliable transport systems, safe, reliable hospital and education. But equally, you need to have uh, some areas inside a government that are prepared to sandbox and do some edgy things. And that's what we created with Service New South Wales. It was essentially the largest startup in the country. You know, when I was at Service New South Wales, we had five engineers. By the time we left, we had about 800. Uh, so, you know, we were building our own product at really fast and turning things around really fast. Um, what we need to do is to make sure that we have those units inside a government, just not just service New South Wales, but in every agency. So they build up a match fitness, if you will, in relation to areas where they can innovate, but not just innovate with themselves, innovate with academia, innovate with the private sector, because that's where you get the, the multipliers. What is the most difficult part of modernising or digitising government services? Uh, the headspace. It's always around leadership. It's around culture. We put people on the moon 50 years ago. Uh, you know, tech's never the challenge. Uh, the challenge is uh, getting the headspace right uh, for, um, you know, assuming a, an informed risk appetite. Because think about it. Um, public servants don't want to do the wrong thing by the minister. You know, they're there to serve the government of the day. And they want their government to succeed. Um, so they will provide advice. Now, they're not going to do provide advice that is so um, risky that uh, the minister sets up for failure because that means the minister will get the advice. Yes, I, I, I like that. I'll sign off on that. If it fails, well, don't blame me. Blame the public servants. They're the ones that told me about this. So the public servants... They don't want that. So they are only going to give something that is just um, pretty much BAU or incremental small changes. To do things that are more uh, with a higher risk profile, you know, it, it will take a change of mindset from the minister and from the public sector to say, if we're going to try something really different, you know, considering the deep challenges we've got, we're going to have to create a safe harbour and we we're going to have to prepare to accept failure, but own it 
and say, all right, what do we learn from it? And then move forward. That's a very different mindset to government. It is. How do you navigate that challenge then of driving really broad change while being across details of a rapid technology rollout and the development of that? Because they're two quite different skill sets sometimes. Yeah, they are. So my job as a minister and, you know, as a leader really, I think leaders from my perspective have three areas that they need to focus on. Uh, One is the vision. uh, And that's because leaders stand on the shoulders of giants and many giants. So a leader has an obligation because they can, they're perched up so high to actually chart the course towards the blue sky and away from the, the storm clouds. So they've got the job to set the vision and the strategy. The second part of their job is to uh, make sure that that vision is implemented. All right, so have some oversight in place. Don't get stuck in the weeds. Uh, otherwise, again, you're not, you're not focusing. Do the deep dive if you need to, but basically make sure that the vision is implemented. And the third part of the job is the communication, to communicate both the vision and the implementation. If the, if the, if the leader does the vision, implementation, communication, then you get to the outcome. And so in order to do that, to answer your question, you do need to have that high-level view of the tech. You need to know what tools you've got to play with. But equally, you need to be able to you know, work with your team to actually get this job done. I've heard you reference something before called Australia's digital spine. Um, Can you take our listeners through what you mean? Yeah, so Australia needs to grow a a backbone, uh, and I call it a digital spine, uh, for a digital age. At the moment, um, we've got a a digital spine, but it's it's in desperate need of going to a chiropractor. It's busted, to be honest. Um, We've got MyGov, which is a terrible experience. And it's just one single digital ID if you go through there. Uh, you've got director ID. That's another sort of quasi-ID piece that the feds have uh, rolled out. You've got Australia Post. Uh, they've got uh, another ID. Um, and all this is part of that trusted digital identity framework. But the ID is one part of it. Um, it's that that um, regulates the who. But it doesn't go relate to the what, i.e. I know who you are, but that's a small part of the pie. It's what you can do is a real productivity pie. What are you entitled to do? Are you an electrician? Are you allowed to work with kids? Are you allowed to drive a car? Are you allowed to vote? Like, you know, what are you allowed to do? That's the credential part. In New South Wales, what we've built out is that uh, New South Wales digital ID, but it's dovetailed into the credentials, i.e. in your service app, you'll have an ID, but in that very same app, it'll say, I'm allowed to drive a car, I'm allowed to drive a boat, I'm allowed to work with kids, all that. It's all integrated. And so it's a seamless experience between the who and the what. And so if you had your dream digital spine, what would that look like? It, what, what we're hopefully, uh, the, the new government's going to be building out in New South Wales, and that's the stuff I had in beta on my phone before I left i.e. a one-stop shop, which is world-leading, mind you, one-stop shop where the, the who and the what is dovetailed in seamlessly. 
I'm going to pivot here and I'd love to talk with you about trust, trustworthiness and technology broadly. It's an area we also work on at the United States Studies Centre and I'm keen to hear your thoughts about the interplay. You've talked a little bit about, you know, the potential of building a digital spine and for many users technology is actually really scary you know from data breaches to digital currency from the potential of AI to biotechnology people report back that it's a fast-moving space and can feel really out of reach so how do we build trust in technologies and government delivered services as well as technology companies themselves yeah that's a great question um the first thing you do is you don't mandate uh, because you're right um people there'll be Early adopters like me um, and people with a high risk appetite that say, yep, I'm prepared to uh, have Are you adding yourself as a high risk appetite person here? No, I, I'm an informed risk, uh, but I'm definitely an early adopter, but I, with my eyes wide open. Because again, I want to see those tech miracles happen, but that means we're going to have to take some risk in an informed way. So yeah, absolutely. When it comes to me personally, sure. When it comes to the community, no. Uh, we need to bring everybody on the journey at different pace. My mum, there is no way in the world she's a digital person. But for us to be uh, you know, trusted and trustworthy, we need to create an ecosystem where my mum can still feel safe. Uh, so that is critical. So do not mandate. A, a great example was with the Opal card. Even the oldies um, that love their paper, they quickly got used to that plastic card because it was convenient. And they realized they could trust it. And then actually, this is a better system. So how do you build the trust? Um, well, you need to make sure that the experience is seamless. It's not clunky. Uh, that it's far better than what was there before. Uh, and then you, you wrap around the privacy, the ethics and everything else around it. You're now the head of the new um, Trustworthy Digital Society Hub. What does trustworthiness actually mean to you in the context of technology? Uh, well, everyone's got their own metrics around it, but for me it's uh, privacy, security, ethics, uh, transparency and inclusion and sustainability even. Um, they, they are my key metrics around being trustworthy. Grounded in that experience of implementing a digital ID, how did you build trust? Because you did just report those metrics and they are phenomenal. How did you build trust with different groups from individuals to businesses, state and federal government um, to introduce those kind of new technology solutions? Look, it's really, really hard because I remember when we started rolling out the digital driver's license, this was before uh, the pandemic. Uh, that was a huge play. This was the one, one of the first of its kind in the world a digital driver's license. So it's not like uh, there was a rule book that we could follow. Um, and it was such a big play because it is essentially de facto digital ID, right? So we couldn't afford to get it wrong. Uh, and there, there was a reason not many other people did it because it was such a high risk proposition. Um, we did pilot after pilot after pilot. Sure, I told people at the time, look, just let us try it out. It's not going to be with all the bells and whistles, it's going to be like your first iPhone. It's, it's, it'll just do the job basics up. But then we can build on it and build on it, get the feedback, get real-time feedback to say, where are the pain points? How can we improve? Again, this startup-type mentality about focusing on what the customer, what the individual really wants out of it. Uh, and we did about five pilots before we were ready to go to market. And then when we went to market, we were getting real-time feedback from the customer. Because even when we went to market, there were you know, was still bugs in the system that we had to line out. 
you've kind of spoke, touched on a little bit and you've spoken previously about the interrelationship between individuals being in control of their data and strengthening democracy. Can you articulate that a little bit more for our audience? Yeah, so in um, you know, democracies are only 200 years old. They're, they're very fragile. And <laughs> normally, for most of our human civilization we've been dominated by feudalism or slavery. Like, yeah, democracy is very precious. Democracy, the single most powerful unit in a democracy is not the state, it's the individual. The single most powerful unit in an autocracy is the state. In a digital age, uh, how do you empower a democracy? You empower the individual. And in a digital age, that means more control over their personal information. You know, we're living through an era of incredible data insecurity and obviously data security is a, is a fundamental challenge. Can you talk us through the 2020 Service New South Wales data breach, which saw over 100,000 people's data compromised and share with us what was learnt? Yeah, there was a lot of uh, learnings from that. So when we had that service breach, and it was a significant breach at the time, um, it was because actually it was a, a phishing attack. and was we didn't have end-to-end -end digital. It meant there were a whole lot of PDFs inside the system of all these copies of passports and driver's license and stuff, I mean, all this antiquated stuff that, quite frankly, should have been digitized. We should have had multi-factor authentication, all these things. Um, but we learned from that. Uh, we then started putting in MFA. We then uh, created uh, ID support, which was the first of, of its kind in the country. So when there are failures, own them. Be honest about them, say why they happen, but more importantly, say what we're going to do to try and make sure it gets better the next time. How do you identify where technology solutions are the most appropriate method of solving public policy problems? Governments need to make decisions. Um, you know, and unfortunately, a lot of times governments are in an emergency surgery type situation where they're going to make decisions very fast. You can't rely on Ouija boards to make decisions. You've got to be basing it on data. And you can't rely on data that's six months old, 12 months old. You know, in a, in a world that is changing so fast, the best information is often uh, the most recent information. You need tech to get the data in. It's an, it's an IT play. But then you can use the tech, whether it's uh, Gen AI, whether it's, uh, whether it's nanobots, or whatever, whatever you're playing with. It's, it's all comes down to making the best decision for the people that you're elected to serve. And again, you can't rely on Ouija boards for that. Are there any other technologies you've seen overseas that, you know, or that you think are really novel that you wish Australia would adopt? It's always the biotech stuff and the um, med tech that I'm really most interested in. Like I'm, I love what's happening in relation to the, you know, the BCI world, the brain-computer interfaces. Uh, I was at a neurotech conference the other day and they were talking about uh, neural dust, you know, with nanobots in your brain and things like that. But you, you can see where all this is going in a very dystopian way, but equally, if they get the ethics right, uh, they will have a profound impact on anxiety, depression, all some of these wicked mental challenges that so many people suffer with. If we can get it right, you can just alleviate so much suffering. So let's talk about some world events because you've mentioned AI. 
it's hard not to. We're currently watching efforts, you know, globally to regulate AI. And why do you think it's really difficult to consider all of the different dimensions? You know, you, we've got the AI Bill of Rights um, in the US, we've got the UK's white paper, we've got our own, um, you know, comparative analysis and the um, EU AI Act. There's so many different approaches. Yeah. Do you have thoughts on how we can do this well? AI has application in cybersecurity. AI has application in medicine. AI has application in a whole range of areas. Uh, if other less friendly countries decide they're just going to have no rules or regulations around it and they get an AI supremacy, uh, that, that could challenge you know, our freedoms. So it's very, very hard to, to put that genie in the bottle. What we need are frameworks in place. Uh, and uh, I think that's the way the West is moving towards. With, with liability, that is, you know, the government will have obviously uh, frameworks in place. And if, like RoboDebt, if you use AI inappropriately, then you will be on the hook. And as you should be, like a tort or a contract. Um, but to, to start saying you can use it for this, you can't use it for that and putting real tight time, uh, you know, rigs around it, particularly in this early phase is really, really hard. Along with a couple of others, I've suggested ideas like regulating AI at the point of compute. So things like know your customer or know your computation screening to try and help um, regulate at a point uh, which where there is a choke point. Do you have any suggestions for best opportunities of regulation? I mean, what you've highlighted there is that we do need to allow innovation to continue and regulate for safety, which is really critical. How do you see that we could start to regulate them and what kind of areas would be the best opportunity? Yeah, again, we, we have to, we don't want to be too heavy handed here because otherwise you will stifle innovation and if you're stifling innovation, then um, you're, you're unlocking or you're, you're, you're shackling a lot of potential for good. Um, what we need to, to regulate for is um, the harm. And that's where I really think that's where governments really need to play a role. And, and the best way I think to do that is to say, again, we got, um, we, we've already got a lot of baked in principles around uh, the law of tort or director's duties, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it reminds me of recently in relation to, for example, the Crown Casino and Star Casino, right? You know, they are required um, to comply by law in relation to anti-money laundering provisions, AML. Um, they are now getting prosecuted under Section 180 of the Corporations Act because they breached their director's duties because they turned a blind eye to it. I see this ultimately playing in the AI space too, in the sense that, you know, if you're a director of a company and you unleash AI onto the people, ultimately you're going to be on the hook because if you cause harm, they're going to be after you, as they should. Um, so you are now the head of the new Trustworthy Digital Society Hub. Can you share a bit more about the project with us? Yeah, there's a few things that we're working on there. One is uh, it's a, a capacity build in terms of the public sector. Uh, you know, we, we, we need to make sure that we build our inner core strength um, so that you know, when governments do provide services that they can be more agile because if they're always reliant on consultants, then they'll just move slower. Um, another piece we're working on is a Vanguard unit with emerging tech in particular, we can say, look, this is what 
good regulation looks like. If I'm a government minister, I've got a million things on my plate. If I know that the university and the, and the industry have agreed on, you know, what good looks like, the extreme left and the extreme right, then I'm going to sign off on that uh, as an easy win rather than let's start from scratch. Are there some industries kind of outside of government that, you know, really concern you most? I know I've heard you talk about before the role of real estate and collecting, you know, vast troves of data. Yeah, but there's so many, there's so many industries that are in that sort of old world way of thinking. Uh, you, you speak to these same people now and say, well, okay, you gather, you just keep gathering all these PDFs and all these copies of my driver's license. But if there is a, a hack on your system and that thing gets uh, reported, then your whole company is going to go through an Optus-style breach and uh, your loss of goodwill is going to be huge. So, um, you know, holding on to these treasure troves of data is like holding on to asbestos now. Um, so that mind shift is starting to happen. happen. Um, every organisation needs to start thinking about protecting their customer and respecting their customer's privacy. I mean, it's very challenging if many of the companies are doing that collection are based offshore on a commercial, you know, where you, you have only a single term of service to interact with. And there's a huge range of, you know, protection approaches from companies like Twitter or X, you know, through Facebook, through sure. the private sector. There's, there's a whole variety there. And I think it makes it difficult for people to differentiate sometimes. I agree. And that's why you know, government is ultimately the place it really needs to move. Yeah, that's why they, they, they are the gorilla in the market. Um, and sometimes they're the slowest to move, but when they do move, everyone's got to move around them. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm actually really heartened by Australia's approach actually to digital. I think, yeah. we, I think we have been slow, but I think we are actually really picking up pace. So let's talk about the Tech Council of Australia. Um, you've recently joined the board and you're working, I think, on digital identification. Can you share a bit about the issues that you're discussing and what you're hoping to develop? Yes, I, like, I know that um, Minister Gallagher is going to, uh, I think this year, put out a discussion paper or a draft bill in relation to digital ID uh, with a view of hopefully having legislation next year and then some product in the market, uh, according to TDIF, the Trusted Digital Identity Framework, um, which would be just huge for our country. And uh, with my tech council hat on, I said, look, you know, given my passion in the area and I've been working on it for so long, um, if we, being the tech council, can frame up an industry position, um, that way when the feds come out, uh, rather than talking to a thousand people, uh, you know, we can sort of coalesce around the tech council and put our view into one place. And is there, like, are you getting a sense of enthusiasm or concern? Oh, definitely. Like, th this is... One of the most important security, privacy and, uh, and service delivery plays for our country. Let's go to a segment. Um, I want to ask you about the role of alliances. Technologies obviously impact all nations and effective governments need to collaborate with industry and academia to solve complex policy problems. What is the role of alliance building in tech policy? It comes down to trust. Like if I'm using your tech, how, how do I know it's trustworthy? Uh, and increasingly, people are placing a premium on that. Uh, so if I, if I'm not going to use your service unless I know that uh, I'm going to have a reliable return. So you know, when we are building alliances, it's got to be on the basis that uh, we're both playing A grade. 
what do you think the priorities should be for national and international tech collaboration? And maybe to kind of switch that around, you've just said that you think um, trust is right up there. What yeah. else would you see as really important if we if we were to build those um, collaborative frameworks together with other countries? Well, the most important thing around you know, frameworks is standards. You know, you can get all the data in, but it reminds me of the, the rail gauges. Um, you know, we're, we're creating data gauges uh, of this century. So... At the very top end, you need to get your standards right because your standards will then start building that trust architecture that flows into data, flows that flows into tech, that flows into the decision making. At the end of the day, um, so do you think governments right. are engaged enough in those tech standards? Oh, there's there's always more to do. It's such a such a big job, but there's always more to do. What have you been reading, listening to, or watching lately that might be of interest to our audience? The, a book recently has come out, uh, Exponential Organisations. Uh, that, that's come from uh, Salim Ismail and um, uh, Peter Diamatis from Singularity University. It's uh, basically saying in the, in the last century, it was all these big, clunky old organisations like you know, the Ford Motor Company and stuff that would build a thousand widgets with a thousand people. Uh, and and those large, big, cumbersome organisations will slowly die out because they don't have that innovative mindset. Uh, the new uh, century organisations are the exponential organisations, the Apples, the Googles, the Airbnbs, the Amazons that come out of a garage and are constantly evolving, constantly changing, constantly focused about the customer. Um, reminds me a lot that you know, the government is a, an old world organisation how, how do we move it into the new world uh, where it does have that customer focus, uh, where we are solving for the problems of the customer? That's what we try to do a bit through Service New South Wales, have that sort of new world focus. So um, that's really interesting because, again, um, if we want to solve a lot of the wicked problems in society, a government needs to play its part. On a personal note, what technology brings you the most joy? Music. It's not tech but it brings me the most joy. I love my music. It's just, uh, yeah, it takes me to another place. Any favourite genres? Oh, so much. Like at the moment, uh, you know, I've got Radiohead. I, I, I used to listen to it and it's just coming back into my life. So, uh, yeah, got numbers uh, on repeat at the moment. Our second final segment is Emerging Tech for Emerging Leaders. Can you give some insight into how you've led others to navigate major technology changes and technology adoption? Yeah, I, somebody, Damon Reese, who was the CEO of, um, uh, former CEO of Service New South Wales, said to me um, that the, the, the most valuable thing I, I created was an authorizing environment to try something new. Uh, because so many leaders are, have this inertia about doing something different or they, they'll do again the incremental things that really won't cut it in an age where this the world is so dynamic it's not static it's so dynamic uh so creating that environment where you give people a license to try something allow them to fail in a safe way how do you do that i mean creating an authorizing environment is easily said but actually really difficult to do well someone's going to have to a, a, jo a job of the leader is to take account. I remember, and to own it. I remember um, uh, there were a couple of working groups and inside of government, 
uh, two terrible words are working groups because they should be really replaced with talking groups because there's not many decisions that come out of it. They just talk a lot. Um, I remember uh, there was a working group that was set up and, uh, and, and I said to the agency, I, I need this thing. We're, we're up to, we, you know, we need this decision. Oh, we're waiting on the working group. Okay, well, when we get a decision, oh, next week, working group comes along, what happened? Oh, they're still working through it. I said, all right, enough, enough. I've been waiting on this for three or four weeks. I'm going to turn up to the next working group. I said, oh, no, the ministers don't turn up to this. I said, well, I'm going to turn up to it. So I turned up to this working group. I said, listen, you are so much more experienced than me, a lot more expertise than me when it comes to this tech. But ultimately, we're going to make a decision today. Or better still, I'm going to make the decision today. You're going to make the recommendation. I'm going to make the decision. So it falls on my head. I'm going to own it. If it fails, it's my failure, not your failure. But we're going to make a decision today. So I, leaders have to own and make the decision. I think that sounds like a very powerful moment to have been in. Then you give them the freedom to voice that because it's not on their head. Ultimately, it's on my head. It's my head that, that goes to an election, not theirs. And when you empower them to, to, to speak freely, knowing that I own the accountability, yeah, then you can move things forward. Um, in our last segment called Need to Know, is there anything I didn't ask you that you'd like to share with the audience? No, it's been quite comprehensive. Great. Um, thank you so much for joining me today. It has been a real pleasure. Likewise. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Technology and Security. I've been your host, Dr. Mia Hamanderi. I'm the inaugural director of the Emerging Tech Program at the United States Studies Centre based at the University of Sydney. If there was a moment you enjoyed today or a question you have about the show, feel free to tweet me at M-I-A-H underscore H-E or send an email to the address in the show notes. You can find out more about the work we do on our website, also linked in the show notes. We hope you enjoy this episode and we'll see you soon.